Welcome back, folks, to episode 51 of the Running Man Self-Regulation Skills and Self-Improvement Project podcast with me, your host, Dr. Armando Dominguez, PhD in health psychology, licensed professional counselor and adjunct professor at a local community college. And what we're going to be discussing today having to do with self-regulation is my feelings and how I am in control of those feelings. And we're going to discuss accountability responsibility for one's feelings, and also when we blame others for making me feel that way, and the reality of what's actually going on and the amount of control we actually have that some of us may not know, and the degree of time required to actually allow us that opportunity to create that control of self, so to speak. And self-regulation is going to be the focus today, but more specifically, our feelings. So, Without further ado, the first thing we're going to mention is, well, whenever we get in stressful situations, why is it that my feelings often take off like a rabbit? And it's really fast and all of a sudden they get intense and then we start to huff and puff and brood and get upset and our voice changes and then we get physically angry. Well, that is the question that we're going to answer today. Fact of the matter is, uh, our feelings often... Uh, stem from very sudden changes in environmental situation, whether it be social where we're interacting with somebody and someone may say something to us. Maybe we have a social faux pas and we're very embarrassed and we get red-faced and feel that anxiety and that rush of adrenaline that occurs in the blood flow shifting in the body. Or it could stem from uh, maybe even a physical pain or maybe start feeling ill at ease or like we're not sure what's wrong and often we may start having the beginnings of an illness such as a cough or a cold or a virus or something like this and we're just not as comfortable as we were and that can actually make us a little snippy or snappish or or leave it a little short or if we haven't rested or eaten well so what we're foundationally going to talk about are the things that must be in place to make sure that we can ensure our best responses as far as how our body's responding so that we can manage the self-regulation or self-control of our feelings. Now, this isn't just about what's all in your head, but what's going on in your body as well. We have to recognize that. Um, in the addiction studies and the addiction science, some of the things that are passed around as far as wisdom to pay attention to. And these are essentially triage, symptomology of body, states of body, not just mind, but we tend to relegate it to what our thoughts and our patterns of thought are like as a result of what our body state is. But uh, I will name these and here they are. And it starts off as uh, HALTS, H-A-L-T-S, B, and sometimes they add different things, and it's an acronym, and each letter stands for a state of body. And the very first one for halts is hungry. We often hear about people going too long without eating and getting hangry, and yes, that's part of it. But uh, whenever we are hungry, sometimes we're not at our best. We get a little confused. We may be tired. If you've gone too long and you're not fasting intentionally or maybe literally you've been so busy and you've burnt whatever fuel you refueled with the day before, then you're going to feel a little tired, maybe a little grouchy, and maybe a little short because we are now in the very edges of what we would call, if we were cave people, starvation mode. And we're trying to seek a way to alleviate that so we can feel like we're okay. 
And uh, there is a very pleasurable dopamine response there that goes with that that tells us, hey, we win, we survived, we ate, and uh, we're going to live. So that's a very important signal there. The second A in the acronym has to do with anger. And that is generally relegated to the area of how we think angry thoughts, but also the state of body that we know that physiologically increases heart rate and uh, physical tension in the musculature, changing breathing, and uh, the hyperarousal that uh, occurs in a body like anxiety and this sort of thing doesn't sit too far from anger itself because we have that uh, hyperregulation or upregulation of stress, muscular tension, blood flow moving away from the front part of the brain, and also moving away from the intestines and stomach and going to the skeletal muscles for fight flight because we have to be strong and fast, not really smart and sociable. So angry is a very physical state and it does filter how we look at things. And anger does not necessarily have to mean rage or rageaholic out of control or violent for that matter, but often we tend to associate those things with that. But anger is a state that we use to make change happen and also to motivate physical change whenever we have to run out or change physical environment to change something in our environment that could be dangerous or painful, whether it be running away or blocking a door so something can't get to us, things of this nature. And the second one on halts is L, and that's lonely. Sometimes our social environment may not be giving us what we need. And there are those of us that are a little more extroverted and don't mind being out and about and kind of enjoy the exchange and then go home and we wait for the next time that we can interact with people. Of course, that's an extreme. People fall somewhere in the continuum between extroversion and introversion. But the introvert may enjoy time alone and use that time to recharge, to interact with people, for instance, at a job. Whereas otherwise, he'd rather be mostly alone, maybe not isolated per se, but uh, definitely that can be the farthest end of the spectrum where one completely isolates. But there's an enjoyment or an appreciation of that silence and that alone time, not lonely, but uh, whenever we're talking about loneliness, that's whenever we feel disconnected from the group. Maybe we feel like we don't have connection to our friends or our people. Maybe we don't have those. Maybe we've lost family. And uh, the more eld we become, the older we get, uh, the more we realize that those that are peers and our contemporaries, they tend to pass. Our family members get older. Sometimes maybe we have lost parents. I've lost both of my parents. Lost them when I was in my 40s, mind you, and the parent and had children. And they were grandparents and happy to have three Dominguez boys, which, you know, they were proud of them. But at the same time, they grew older and illness took them. And the reason I mention that is that in the life of a person, often if things go relatively uh, as expected, usually we see our parents and we wind up burying them. Uh, on occasion, it's the other way around where a parent has to bar- bury a child, this sort of thing, or maybe a friend. And there is a loss there. And there's definitely mourning and a grieving that uh, doesn't go away over time because that's always a space that will be occupied by that memory. But also that space that they physically occupied is no longer occupied and it makes us feel a little distant and far away. So we may have bouts of that, but whenever we have a continuous sense of loneliness, that is not healthy for us. 
especially we start identifying with the fact that I not only am I uh, lonely, but rather I don't deserve people's attention. And for some reason, people don't come look for me. And it may not be as a result of what I'm doing wrong, but just the fact that as we age, unless we continue to make new acquaintances and and keep contact and make an effort, we tend not to grow or flower new relationships, and uh, they tend to be easily counted on one hand. And this is especially true for men, probably a little less so for women, but not perfectly so. But those are some very important things that we have to attend to, because they definitely do affect how we interact and how lonely we are. These states of body loneliness, they're not just states of mind. Whenever you see an animal that is lonely, they tend to shirk and stay away and maybe even huddle and cover themselves. It looks almost like anxiety, mind you. And sometimes they may even be a little depressed. They may even develop depressed symptoms or behaviors. So there is something to it. And uh, the next letter in the acronym, we'll move on to the next, is T. And that stands for tired. So if we're not only tired, because we're going to be tired, we will go throughout a day, we get tired, it's time to go to sleep, I get sleepy. That's an important thing. But when we're excessively tired, often we may be apt to reach for a drink or for drug or for relief that may or may not be good for us, especially if we have a problem with those things. But uh, if we start getting tired too frequently, so much that we can't rest and go to sleep, We may start looking for things extraneous to us to make that happen because it's out of our conscious control at that point, or at least we think so. And just as much as we may develop a new habit, we may also have a habit of uh, using something that's unhealthy for us over time. It can become learned. We become skilled at it. We can become addicted, so to speak. So that is definitely something to think about. The next letter in the HALTS B Uh, acronym is S, sleepy. Sometimes we have trouble falling asleep, going to sleep, staying asleep. Sometimes we have broken sleep. But if we have trouble sleeping where we have a lack of sleep over a period of time, two or three days, we start seeing exhaustion set in. And this is where we start making errors in reasoning. We become more apt to become reactive and less able to perform well in our lives, whether it be work, or family, or even making decisions about taking care of little ones. And even at the extreme, maybe even taking care of ourselves. So these are some important things to look at. Now, the next letter in the acronym that was added later after HALTS was developed was B. That's something that we see now with the newer generations that have been using video games. I grew up wherever the video games were a little simple, where you had this... uh, two little paddle thing called Pong and then Atari before it became what it is now. But uh, even on the tail end of my my uh, youth, uh, video games started coming into play. So they've been around for quite a few years, probably about 40 years now. And uh, that's something we have to consider in our recent generations, that uh, we have a sense of entertainment, sense of entitlement, but also boredom. And the boredom is a physical state. Whenever animals, for instance, get bored, they start looking for things and they start doing things that are out of the typical behavioral norm because they just want to change. It becomes uncomfortable. When we have boredom, often this is whenever people start becoming highly suggestible to doing things. Somebody comes around and says, hey, what you doing? And they may come by and maybe nothing planned, but you're open 
to anything or open to something different just to make you feel something because I'm not feeling anything in the sense of excitement and things are kind of not only boring, but uh, painfully so. Not a physical pain, but rather it's probably an emotional psychic pain that we have because things aren't going on and man, I wish something was happening. And we start talking to ourselves and our inner narrative is like, man, everybody else is having fun or someone else is probably out there having fun and I'm just stuck here doing nothing. And uh, notice the things that I was saying and with the tone that I said them with. And it was actually disparaging of me in the sense that like somehow everyone else is having fun, but I'm not like I'm excluded or left out or somehow I'm less than or somehow I'm undeserving. So it makes me more apt to want to step up and do or even earn those good feelings, so to speak. And I'm assuming they're good. And uh, often we get in trouble whenever we do stuff like that. And that is something that often the addiction scientists talk about, that boredom is a big issue, probably even more so in some cases than the tired or the sleepy or the hungry. The boredom, our seeking of novelty, our sense of being entitled to feeling good all the time whenever we can't be feeling good to excess, which is what drugs and alcohol do, that's just not normal. It's not how we were designed. We were meant to enjoy and have peaks of enjoyment, but not peaks to the point that we're kissing the sky, the purple haze like Jimi Hendrix to that level necessarily, but to have enjoyment and have occasional peak experiences, but rather little peaks and valleys or peaks and levels to where we get to our baseline, but not to excess. So we have to keep that in mind. Now, Why is this so important to self-regulation and regulating my feelings? One is recognizing the state that our body is in, because whatever it is that we feel first will actually filter and color what it is that we're thinking second, not moments later, but literally fractions of a moment, fractions of a second later. And this is an important point. So whenever we are trying to regulate our feelings, We have to recognize that our feelings are starting in our body. And if we look at our body as an, not an extension, but rather as the physical aspect of our subconscious mind, that is the nonverbal aspect of human that we have, that we are. And knowing that this is the part that interacts with our environment, that's the most animal part of us. It's the most simple part of us, the most creative part of us, and also potentially the most physically dangerous part of us whenever we have to. When we recognize this, this gives us something to work with in that now we know that it's not all in my head and it's not just my thinking, even though my thinking is a part of it, but I can control my thinking more effectively and learn how to regulate myself more effectively by regulating and developing skill in the body first. You start with the body and the mind will follow. And as far as changing things now, whatever it is we believe we can achieve with our body And it does work that way, but that assumes a measure of safety moving forward with the intention to develop skill for the benefit of whatever it is that I want to do, whether it be football or learning something like that, a physical skill. But whenever it comes to self-regulation of mood, of emotions, of fear response, we have to realize we're working with something that already exists in our body, but it doesn't have to be out of hand. Part of that is how quick things respond and what we allow ourselves to think or believe at a point of reactivity. The fact of the matter is that we don't have to necessarily 
get honked off and go ham on somebody, so to speak, to be able to experience anger. We don't have to go from zero to 50 every time we get angry. Can we have a small bit of anger and upset? Yes, we can. Can we have a measured bit of upset and disappointment and use that to talk to somebody and let them know, hey, I didn't like this, to set a boundary? Yes. Does it always have to be fisticuffs and kicking and punching and hurting someone else or even self for that matter? No, not at all. But whenever we feel feelings, if someone doesn't teach us that we regulate those feelings, those feelings are ours, but they're tools if we allow them to be, but they can also be a ride that we get on that we can't get off of if we allow ourselves to let them go too far or if we encourage them to go too far. Now, this does not speak to those that have had trauma in particular. If you've had trauma, this does, this does work. There is a very fast reactivity that goes on there, and this does not separate them. This does apply to them too, but we have to know that it doesn't always have to be the most extreme reactivity. And if we know that there are things that make us upset or irritated or make us feel uncomfortable, we have foreknowledge. Most people, whenever they have emotions and they get out of hand, it's because they've not been taught that they can control them or that they're allowed to control them or the models that they had teaching them how to act whenever they were upset or had feelings were not good models. You may have seen adults acting like infant children out of control and just letting it all hang out like this is somehow acceptable. It may not have been acceptable, but people may have left them alone and they just happened to live with them because once they cool off after being honked off and upset, then they can go back and be sociable and, well, they're family and we love them and, well, we just have to put up with them. That's just part of it. And honestly, that's really pretty far from the truth. It doesn't have to be that way. And regulation is a skill that one learns and builds. So what I want to tell you is that whenever, for instance, and this is um, not a metaphor, but uh, an idea, an idea of how our anger works. If you were to walk into the forest or into your backyard if your neighbors aren't home, and if you were to look at a tree and poke your hand into the tree like you were trying to poke somebody's chest and aggress them, hey, what are you doing? And do it with aggression. Push the tree. Don't hit the tree. Just push it. And then push it like you would somebody that would get upset, for instance. And then you get physically tense because you physically moved. And you did it in conjunction with a, hey, I'm talking to you. Why aren't you talking back to me? And it may seem like a silly exercise, but it's just a tree. Trees don't talk back, do they? Well, you could treat it like it does, but it's not talking to you. You can imagine, you know, what method acting is like, right? Well, this is what we do. We're actually envisioning what someone should be responding like in this tree, and then we can get physically agitated, raise our heart rate, get upset, and really get angry to the point to wherever we get truly angry and maybe livid, to where we might get heated, get red, heart rate going up, and there is no rhyme or reason to it other than the fact that I intended to do it. And by your intention, we can make yourself, you can make yourself angry at a tree or anything else for that matter, which means you control your anger. You can make it out of nothing, at something that is an inanimate for the most part. And you can have an argumentative sense, get angry, and then get pissed to the tree, 
And then all of a sudden, you're stuck in a state of anger, realizing that, well, you brought it to bear because you got physically dynamic and you treated it like an us versus them situation. So why would I teach you this idea? One is because not every emotion has to run its fullest course to the highest level of intensity. We can have the emotion experience it and not act on it in an irrational, unreasonable way. Now, how do we preserve that rationale and reason? One is realize that whenever you physically feel your emotion, anger in this case is the example, it takes about 8 to 10 seconds for it to be felt in the body. This is a hormonal reaction, which means it goes into your bloodstream and you have to metabolize that out. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have to act on it. Some of it is neurotransmitter, wherever it's a reactive state. Now, whenever we have our feelings, whether it be the happy, whether it be the sad, or the shock of an emotion, understand that we feel first. We're wired that way. But whenever you choose to act on it, that's whenever our thoughts start to reflect and filter and get colored by those emotions, and then we start careening off into a direction we didn't intend to go towards in the first place. So, first thing is recognize that you're going to have that feeling, allow yourself to feel it. Sometimes the Stoics say, you know, put it on the shelf. If it's a slow emotion, you can do that, and you don't have to act on it. You can always go back and have feelings about it. You can. You control that. You can go back and revisit the thought, and you can you can have it. This isn't denying yourself, but rather setting time aside for it for when it's appropriate so you can increase the more positive and wanted outcomes in your life versus destroying the outcomes that potentially could have benefited you. Now, what I'm going to remind you of is from Dune, and I've spoken on this once, but the Bene Gesserit Litany Against Fear. And this is something from a science fiction novel, but uh, Frank Herbert, when he wrote it, really knew what he was talking about. But I'm going to point something out within it. I will read it first, and then I'll point out the part that really is pertinent to what we're talking about today. And it goes this way. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. The part that is most pertinent to us is realizing that when they speak of fear, let's think about anger. When we think about all of our feelings, sadness, depression, upset, those are all aspects of a fear of loss. What do we fear losing that we get reactive in that sense? The other part has to do with whenever I permit it to pass over me and through me. That's realizing that 8 to 10 second physiological state of emotion that we have that floods through us for a moment. It's not always overpowering, but it can be. But not acting on it and suspending action once we feel it. And it starts to subside after a moment. Just breathe out first. When you're experiencing it so that your body does not take off in sympathetic reactivity, but rather in parasympathetic reactivity. Sometimes doing the double sniff technique and then exhale is helpful while it happens. And then to turn the inner eye to see its path. Meaning once that's done, that means that you can see, you can feel within yourself that is now 
this space of what am I going to do? It gives you a chance to choose. You realize where the fear has gone or the fear of loss has gone. There will be nothing. That means you have not cognitively, you haven't thoughtfully engaged it. Now it's only you and you get to pick. What are you going to do now? Now you have the choice in your hands when it's most powerful. Whenever you can make a difference and you can steer away from tragedy or disruption or dysphoria and steer towards something that's better for you. Now, that's all we're going to cover for today. And that was a lot. And I like this lesson today because it's something that I use very frequently. Something that I've taught to my martial arts students, but also... It's something that I've taught my sons, and it's something that I I have taught patients and students of mine for many years, and it's a very effective method. And I'm happy to share it with you. It's not anything new, nothing profound, but I tell you what, it's profound in its effect. And if you use it, you like the benefit. So that's it for today, this Sunday night. It's about 16 degrees Fahrenheit here. I'm not sure what it is in centigrade, but it's pretty damn cold. We've had snow flurries, and it's been beautiful, I will say. And I'm grateful to you and your time, and thank you for sharing this Sunday evening with me. And I certainly look forward to hearing from you. If you have any feedback for me, send it to the email at runningmangetskillsproject at gmail. And we're also on YouTube now and on every podcast platform that you can think of. And uh, if you'd like to, please share this and pass it along if you think the message is useful. And even to those people that you don't think will benefit, I would greatly appreciate it. Good talking to you. You take care. Walk well.